Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Hold on a second. I gotta, I gotta say it's okay that you are recording. Yeah, I'm absolutely all ready to go. You know, it's a, uh, you know, just got some thoughts about both of the movies. You know, and uh, I definitely liked one more than the other one, but I still like them both. So okay, we'll discuss. Yeah, we'll discuss. I, I say this a lot, mm-hmm. but I, I'm, I have nothing written down. Like, I, <laughs> I. I I need to get into a better habit of writing notes because I, I always I always do the thing where I, I finish the episode and I'm like, oh, but I should have said this. Um, yeah. But uh, then I often will watch a movie with the intention of writing notes and I won't write anything because I'm just paying attention to the movie. I just I'm not in the habit of writing notes during the movie. Um, and I need to get better about that because th- I have nothing. I'll have some impressions and some things to say, but I, I think that kind of fits both of these movies that, that. Yeah. I was just about to say that, you know, there's kind of like a, a freeform aspect or at least, you know, you get this idea that it's one way when in fact it's coming out a different way, you know, if that makes sense, you know, it's yeah, like they're well, both kind of something, but then they're both not. If that makes, we'll talk about it. We'll get into it. Yeah. Yeah. But, we'll get into um, it. Yeah, when I was watching these, because uh, we were over at the in-laws for Thanksgiving, I saw Diva the night that we got in, which was Tuesday night. And then, um, you know, I had to be really quiet, so I couldn't, like, write down notes or anything like that. And then uh, uh, for Mavasson, I, um, I watched it in, like, three different places because part of it was here, part of it was there, and part of it was, like, somewhere else. And so it's like, oh, okay. You know, didn't have time to write down everything, but I think I got some good ideas like banded around right now. Okay. Well, that's good. We'll get into, we'll get into those. Uh, I should introduce you because it's been quite a while since you were on. I think it's almost been a year at this point. Yeah. I I was just looking at some stuff and I realized that it's been a year. I can't believe it's been that long. Were you? Well, I know you were guest number one in that episode that never aired because it was just, we were testing it out. Yeah, we're testing it out. Um, and then were you guest number one or two? I think Jared was guest number one, right? And then you were... Yeah, he was one, and I think I was two. And then I was one other bef- after that. I want to say it had some, one, one, like a music episode, right? Yeah, well, we, we, we discussed um, the lure and happiness of the Katakuris. Yeah, that's what it was. Uh, yeah, but it, it's been a while. Um I mean, too long. I, I should have had you back on sooner, but this is uh, everybody. <laughs> Zeke Perez. Zeke is here. Uh, hey, how, how have you been? Been well. Really, really busy, but really, really good. Yeah, a lot of it is just like schedules not timing out. 
um, because once I went back to work, like your work schedule, you're you're working the hours that I'm pretty much free and would be able to record. Um, <laughs> I think and, I'm just and, working every hour. It feels like now. Oh yeah, I I feel yeah. I'm I'm not actually working this week. I'm but I'm doing classes, um, learning how to use my tools and everything. And that, you gotta that, do. that's a, you know, eight hour classes. And so it's not like backbreaking, like some of the work can be, but I'm still, you know, I, I'm still having to get up early and Being in an eight hour class is just as grueling as like a hard work day, you know, especially if you're learning something new, man, don't, don't, uh, don't write it off. It's well, really, you know. So what I'm doing, I mean, I don't know if I've actually discussed it much on, on the show. I've, I've said I'm in construction now, but I'm, I'm plastering. And um, so far, what that has been is is just assisting people. And it's all the grunt work. Like I have to carry the big buckets full of material. I have to carry bags of cement or clean up or make sure that the tape is up and everything is <clears throat> masked and all that. And it's actually like a, a quite a bit, can be quite a bit of physical labor. And um, now I'm learning how to use my tools and use the hawk and trowel to actually apply plaster. And that's all we're doing this week. Uh, a couple of other things, uh, activities as well, but it's basically just go in and we got a section of wall and we just apply a, a base coat to it. And then once we're done, we go back and we start it over again. And uh, so we're doing like, we each have our own section and we're, we're doing that all day. And um, it, looks so easy when people have, have been doing it for years because it's just like such fluid motion and they're able to take a little trowel full of material and spread it all the way from floor to ceiling and I'm just sitting there like making such a mess just dropping stuff everywhere and uh, <laughs> it's it, but you know this is where you learn and yeah this not, is how I, you learn the way it, they get to where they're at is by doing what you did you know mm -hmm. it just comes with time and effort and technique yeah. Technique is just about doing it over and over again. Practice. So I'm I'm not coming home like sore and and achy, but I I mean I I, I do have to change before I leave. I do that I do that anyway. I don't like I don't want to drive home in the family car in these filthy construction site clothes, and so I always change. But I'm coming home or I'm changing out of very very muddy clothes this week. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway we're, we're kind of getting off topic um which is fine i feel like this episode is going to be a, maybe a little bit more meandery than well um, being off topic actually kind of works yeah you, you know it's, it's funny we were talking about this uh, a little bit before recording that you know both of these movies tend to meander they they go one place and they wind up going in some completely different direction and then sometimes you think it's going in that direction and then it takes another complete different turn. So well, meandering is good. I will say that one of these films meanders and another of these film films moseys. And we, <laughs> we will discuss the difference after this break. We will discuss the one that I feel meanders the most uh, right in just a couple of minutes. Uh, listen to the trailer for this. It's going to be 1981's Diva. And we'll be right back.
Allez, saute. Ah, c'est la chaîne qui te gêne. Two tapes, two Parisian mob killers, one corrupt policeman, an opera fan, a teenage thief, and the coolest philosopher ever filmed all twist their way through an intricate and stylish French language thriller. So says the IMDb description for Diva, Jean-Jacques Benet's 1981 film in uh, what would eventually become known as the Cinéma du Look, a bunch of French films in the 80s that started to favor style or oh, style over substance. Um, it was kind of termed pejoratively. Uh, the, the term was coined pejoratively, that is. Um, but I think a lot of these films have become very beloved. Uh, I think there's been a lot of cultural reappraisals. And, and certainly there were cultural reappraisals pretty quickly after they came out. But um, yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself there. This movie, uh, I had never seen it before. I'm not sure I had even heard of it. I'm I'm sure I must. Uh, like it's just kind of not the most uh, striking name for a movie. So if somebody's like, "Oh, Diva is good," I might not have even known to like pay attention. Um, it, but uh, first time watch, it I not knowing what to expect. It took me a minute to realize, like, or well, a minute, like a length of this movie's runtime to realize like, oh, like I, I'm just supposed to be kind of like enjoying the scenery and and the plot machinations. Like I, I'm not getting it, it's supposed to be getting anything out of it. I expected like some, um, maybe some kind of deep existential message or something but the, the movie is just kind of like a, an entertaining thrill ride and I'm not saying it's shallow there is stuff we will get into I'm just but like it took me a while to realize like to adjust my expectations and be just like oh this is just going to be fun yeah you know and that's it's funny because I the only reason why I'm familiar with this movie um, and again this is actually a first time watch for me as well too is because I've been you know one of my big habits and passions is record collecting and over the past, I don't know, yeah. I want to say maybe the last two months, I keep seeing the LP for Diva pop up. You know, I'll be flipping through, you know, old soundtracks and, you know, it just keeps popping up and popping up. And that's how it got on my radar initially. And then uh, I was listening to a classical piece by Eric Satie, uh, Gymnotech number one, I think is what it is. It's a... Uh, um, and when I was doing a little bit more, you know, looking into the piece, uh, they mentioned that part of his work is featured in this film. I'm like, oh, that's that same film that I've been seeing all these LPs of lately. I might as well give it a shot. And that's kind of how it moseyed into or meandered more like it into my life recently. 
Yeah, well, I will say that since this is your your pick, I was watching it, yeah. and at a certain point, I, I was like, "Oh, I know why." <laughs> like this this Jules character probably struck a chord with you, like going to these uh, shows illicitly recording. Not saying that you that's what you do. <laughs> not no 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 not at all. I don't listen not, to record. Wink, not wink. for profit, but only to be able to go back to his loft and listen to them by himself and just experience this rapturous music he's a he's a big opera fan and the diva in question is um cynthia hawkins an american opera uh singer who um he is i mean it's safe to say in love with uh yeah completely enamored completely enamored with her it goes beyond just being a fan um because yeah, the, the movie opens and he's he's recording her uh singing this aria from an opera la la lee um and uh you know pre- professional great equipment and he goes to meet her and he steals a dress from from her dressing room and uh that kind of kicks everything off uh we'll, we'll get into the rest of the plots in a bit but his obsession with this singer is really what what sets everything in motion and just to bring it back a second because you said this film meanders and i kind of said one of these films we're discussing meanders one moseys um i say this one meanders because it it has a deceptively intricate plot um very yeah very much it's it's so convoluted even though it's presented fairly straightforward like the audience knows everything they need to know we're never in like uh we're never confused we're not we're never not clear on what's going on we have all the information everybody's motivations and everything um but the movie takes so many detours the movie seems very uninterested in its own plot for for long stretches which is something that can be said about both of these movies um more so I think the next one but this one will will take a lot of digressions where the characters are not doing anything that's advancing the plot they're having conversations they're sharing music with each other uh they're sitting on the floor yeah, doing going very to large puzzles. shoplifting you know what yeah that? you know oh I was about to say you know they go to record stores they teach you how to shoplift LPs you know it's uh it's very interesting as to they, they set everything up and in one aspect, you expect it to, it's, um, how do I say this? They set everything up from the get-go and you expect a, a, because it is quite convoluted with all these you know, people and all these parts. So you start kind of building in your head, how convoluted can this get? And in the end, it, it really doesn't get that convoluted because it doesn't really address any of it too. Well, right? I, I think the movie, uh, the movie loves the plot or, you know, the, the people making it, uh, Jean-Jacques Benet, um, like he, he takes advantage of a lot of, a lot of like, well, he, how am I trying to say it? Like he explores the, that's not right either. Well, he takes advantage of some of the tropes that you expect. Yeah. And, you know, from like almost like a heist film. Yeah. I think he does like utilize the plot to its fullest he gets as much as he can out of it in terms of kind of the the set pieces you might expect and 
the double crosses and the revelations. Um, and everything like does come together in a satisfying way in the end, like everything at very unexpected ways that, that things uh, kind of resolve themselves. And in some cases it very like ridiculous ways, like um, we'll get into oh, it. Oh yeah. The ending. Yeah. The ending of what happens to the, uh, the, the Taiwanese um, bootleggers, <laughs> like record bootleggers, <laughs> The way that yeah, that storyline is resolved is is like laughably silly, but it's also like that's pretty cool and like fun. It's just a, um, yeah, it has this it has a very French cool new wave tinge to it, you know. But at the same time, it kind of revels in the absurd. It it does, and so I I don't think the movie is uninterested in its plot. The movie is just like. Um, which I said, I, I misspoke earlier. I, I just think the movie is as much interested in the interior lives of some of its characters um, and the the interactions, the way that they interact with each other and bounce off of each other more than just like the plot, the, the you know, uh, the MacGuffin, uh, the, or more than just, you know, the MacGuffin of it all. And there, there's like two MacGuffins in this movie. <laughs> It, yeah, it's yeah. really like a, a follow the, you know, follow the bouncing ball kind of like plot. Yeah, because some some people are motivated by one MacGuffin. The other people are motivated by the other MacGuffin. And then at the same time, you have uh, the protagonist really balancing the two. And, you know, even sometimes he's in the dark itself, you know? Yeah, well, that's that's kind of interesting because the character of Jules I don't think he ever fully understands what happened or what's going on. Even so he, okay. I, let's just talk about the plot. Like the, the next big inciting incident, because he records this uh, surreptitiously to go home and listen to it later. He is observed recording it by these um, more unsavory types who want to uh, get this uh recording because cynthia hawkins the opera singer has never set foot in a recording studio and refuses to record uh she only wants to sing live and there i mean maybe you, well, you can say oh go ahead are they are, are they taiwanese mobsters are they just mobsters who are heavily interested in signing recording artists because they have this weird aspect of these two Taiwanese guys where they dress like mobsters, they look like mobsters, but their whole purpose is they have to sign this opera diva for this recording. Like that's all their, their urge and that's their whole entire motivation is signing a record contract or getting this diva to sign a record contract with them. Yeah, which is kind of yeah. like, what, what, what world is this? Was this really plausible in the early 80s? that there would be such a market for this opera singer in particular that the 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 this either mobsters or recording company wants to blackmail her into recording an album for her or they're going to release this bootleg um this inferior quality bootleg and she'll receive no profit from it um yeah so that that's kind well, of it's the funny thing also, too, is it's not just a market for her music. You know, you have to think that it's a market 
as a job for these guys. Cause this almost sounds like this isn't their first time that they've done this. It's almost like they're touring the world, pressuring, you know, independent musicians into cutting a record contract or they will bootleg their live material. It's yeah, and kind they, of ridiculous. And they all they they offer up a, a pretty big sum of money in return for the tape. Like it, it I mean, I don't know how much was in that wad, but they're like they're saying like here's a down payment kind of thing. And it's like would there really be such a, a high demand that it would be worth it for them? Well, I mean, but whatever, let's go with it. So that's, that's like, that's group number one. They want to get this tape so that they can use it to blackmail the opera singer. Now, the day after this, Jules is a postman. And while he's delivering on his little moped, a woman is killed. And, but before she dies, she secretly stashes this tape in his bag uh, on his moped. And she is a prostitute, and the tape is her confession that is naming a high-ranking police official as the head of a drug and prostitution ring. And uh, so the, the gang, not the gang, the, the racketeer, the, the, the prostitution ring, has a couple of assassins that are after him now for this tape. And the police are after the tape, even though they don't quite know what's on it, they just know it exists. Um, so you've got all of these parties that are after Jules for multiple reasons. And Jules doesn't know about the tape for most of the movie. He find, he sees it and he's like, oh, it's a tape, whatever. And it's not until late in the movie that he listens to it. And, and even then, I'm not sure he completely understands all of the people that are after him or, or oh, yeah. how it all, it all fits, fits together. together. But we well, do. For the majority of the... Yeah. And for the majority of the film, he's thinking that the police are after him because he stole the diva's dress. And then it kind of evolves into, oh, well, you know, the police want this recording that I did of the diva as well as the dress. I'm going to get arrested for stealing a dress. And yeah, he doesn't yeah. quite understand the uh, the ramifications or how serious his situation is. And I, I, I think now is a good enough time to mention Alba, uh, the young uh, Vietnamese French woman that uh, Jules notices shoplifting records um, and like strikes up a, a flirtation with. I don't think it's ever consummated. They, they, uh, there's clearly like romantic attraction, I think, between both of them, but it, it doesn't seem like anything happens. They, they do get close. Um, and her, I don't know what he is to her. <laughs> I have no uh, idea who he is too. He's, yeah. This, he's, by he's like, just like this. Oh, no, you go. go, go. Okay. He's, he's like this 30 something guy does not seem to do anything. Seems to have a lot of money, seems very well connected and like, seems to know, to know what to do in just about any situation, but also never gets excited be up by any of it he just kind of like he's smoking a cigarette looks a little bored and he's like oh yeah i'll come help you and he goes and he knocks out an assassin and just like he 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 knocks out an assassin with like a spray canister of what what would that be chloroform i have um, no idea what it is i thought it was hairspray at first well he knocked him out yeah but <laughs> like, it must be yeah it must be chloroform yeah uh so he does all of this and then he goes and he has an exchange 
with the police commissioner or not the, the chief. I can't remember what his rank is. Um, yeah, the, the high ranking officer who is leading up that prosecution when you were mentioning earlier, the one that Kate that the police are trying to get uh, implicates. And he never like his his excitement never level never rises above the scenes which most of his early scenes of him just sitting on cross-legged on a floor putting together a very large puzzle <laughs> like he, yeah. he has the huge, same energy huge level puzzle, but the size of his whole apartment yeah. yeah and he's well i like i like to think that maybe he got excited on the the, the things that we don't see because when he does approach a high-ranking officer he set up all these mannequins <laughs> in the warehouse <laughs> so you know I, I have this feeling like you know he's already putting all, all this energy with you know posing these mannequins and making this contraption which lowers all this stuff for the money you know maybe he's exerting himself in this excitement with those things yeah it, his character i do not understand um because in the beginning, I I thought he was going to be a very bad person because he does not come across well to the audience. Um, there's a scene where Alba goes on a date with Jules and Alba is living with Gordish and Gordish knows that they're going out, knows that Jules is an opera lover and interested in her. And she's out for a very long time. And all they do is they sit on Jules's couch and listen to music. And I think they kiss, but they're holding hands a lot. Um, she comes home late and he's in his, is he, he's in the bath at this point. Right. And he like tells her, yeah, he's in the bathtub. Yeah. And he like tells her not to do it again, but he's like very, it's like the most commanding he gets is like th this implication that he's like, don't like, don't go out all night without telling me, uh, or you, you have to come back to me like earlier than that. Like, it's very kind of creepy because you don't know what their relationship is even by the end you don't really know what their relationship is um but then he turns out to be an okay guy for the rest of it like he he's he's pretty nice to jewels like they and help very helpful but um apparently those two characters alba and gordish are the main characters in a series of novels like this this movie is based on a novel and they appear in five of these novels as the main characters. So um, I kind of want to read them. I don't know if their characterization yeah. would be the same as in the movie, but they, they're very like interesting. Yeah, it's, they, it's one of the, my favorite parts about this, just because you, you can't really read these two, these two people. And, you know, Alba seems very, not just like just light and flirtatious, but she's also... Uh, you know, she gets very serious, you know, at sometimes, you know, she's driving getaway cars and other times she's, you know, she takes an active role rather than just being on the sidelines. And, you know, it's, I, I, I wonder if, if their roles uh, are the same in these other books, you know, are they kind of, you know, the one, the two characters that keep popping up in these series are, is it like all about somebody else and then they show up kind of similar to Diva? You know, it's, it makes me really kind of want to figure out more just about them because it's, it's so absurd, you know? Oh, I mean, I completely, I completely agree. Um, what's so like kind of funny about, uh, about this character Gordish is just how he drives this like antique Citron car 
And yeah. I'm, I'm kind of getting, I'm going to stumble over trying to describe this final scene where he goes and he has, um, he has the tape of, uh, he's handing off the tape with the high ranking police official. And uh, the police official has planted a bomb in his Citron so that when like he hands over the tape for the money and he goes and uh, he takes the money and he's leaving, he's leaving and the two Taiwanese mobsters or whatever they are, like say, okay, we're just taking the tape. And they like steal a tape from him and they jump in the, his Citron to drive away. And the police commissioner or the high ranking police official um, sets off a bomb blowing up the car and Gordish is just kind of like walking and he sees them in the car getting in and they're leaving and he's like I'm just walking by him like then the car explodes and he just opens a garage and there's an identical Citroen in the garage and he gets in that and identical drives away. and he's already planted it there like this is his whole plan is that he knew the high-ranking officer was going to plant the bomb the Taiwanese guys were going to show up steal the car and he has the exact same car ready to go just, you know, on the fly right there. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it's just funny how well prepared he is for everything. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I gotta, I, apologies, but I'm looking to see what happens here because I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I saw the movie, but I've only seen it once and I'm trying to see, remember the, chain of events here um so the oh commissaire so what commissioner or chief uh yeah the the, the chief okay the so, high-ranking so, officer supporta pays off gordish but does does gordish not hand over the tape at this point because he um if, if i remember he he does hand over the tape shit i'm forgetting now because no, the tape it's... is still this the tape still exists at the end of the movie both tapes the recording and the the um the confession yeah i can't remember i think he makes a copy of it that's what it was he made a copy of the tape well that would be the smart thing to do but um yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, I, I, okay, this is completely off topic now, but the two hitmen that are chasing after um, uh, Jules are the West Indian and the priest. And did you catch who the priest was? The priest is Dominic Pignon from Oh my gosh, yes, it's his first the, role. All of the Jean Pierre Wanette movies. And uh, it was so much, this is his first movie, and he, he He's so stoic in this. And you, you know, you know him like Jean-Pierre Wanette uses him so much because he's kind of a clown. Like he 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 has a very elastic face and he, he kind of like has a really good physicality. Um, so it's interesting seeing him looking like cool in this movie. Like he's always wearing sunglasses. Yeah, he looked really cool. You know, yeah, for a it, second when he first came on this um on screen, I actually thought he was because recently I watched uh Suburbia. And I thought it was just for a quick second flee from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And, you know, I kind of did a double take. I'm like, no, it's not flee from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And then, you know, Dominique Pignon. Wow. He's good in this. And he's, his, his character is, um, 
kind of a well they're both psycho psychopaths they're assassins i mean for a a like sex trafficking ring so <laughs> um yeah uh another bit of casting so will uh wilhelmina wiggins fernandez plays uh cynthia hawkins and um she was a I don't know if she's still alive actually i didn't look her up that much but she is an actual uh like opera she's an singer. actual she, opera singer yeah, yeah she's an actual diva um and this is her only acting role on film like like you know obviously she needs to be on stage she needs to act she needs to sing she's very talented but that's a kind of a different talent well, to top that off too she needs to also speak english and french which yeah, she does, yeah. you know, rather well, both. I was reading that the producers were like, okay, we've got to find an actress who is uh, African-American, speaks English and French, and sings opera. <laughs> like, we, how are we going to do that? And the first thing they did, they went to a, an opera. I can't remember what, what it was. And Wilhelmina Fernandez was, like, singing that night. And they're like, oh, well, like, their first time out, they're like, well, that's who it is. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay, yes. it's just can you just imagine walking in and seeing the person who you're looking for already performing on stage? Uh, but yes, she is she is still alive. But I wanted to say that it's impressive because film acting is a different skill set, and I think she does very well in this. I I, I think she ad adequately portrays somebody that Jules would be so obsessed with. Yes. And uh, the, her reactions, like, because she's got to portray, it, it's hard to make it believable when somebody does something as stalkery as Jules does, because he he gets, he, he starts getting scared that he's going to get found out, and also maybe he feels a bit guilty. He returns the dress. Um, With flowers. Although, he did make that prostitute wear it. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. He's, already, he's already gotten plenty of use out of the dress. So it's like, is, never... is she going to want it back? Yeah, I, I, don't think, I, I think he's just leaving that whole entire part out. That's what the flowers are for. You <laughs> know, just to kind of ease it in case it happens to be brought up. But, you know, there's a point where you could just see this level of, like, disgust. And just, you know, she's kind of freaked out by, you know, him stealing the dress and returning it but then once he starts describing you know where he's seen her where it's just not some guy stealing a dress it's like no i've seen you in berlin for this performance i've seen you here i've seen you here it changes from a you know an act of you know oh my gosh you stole my dress that's really kind of creepy to like wow you are you're actually kind of really into this whole fandom thing yeah and it's it's hard to sell that and it, it is not her fault that i kind of don't buy it i think she plays all of that well i just think like every time i see one of these movies where the guy does something so incredibly stalkery and then it somehow yeah. like charms this the stocky i i just think like i, I want to call bullshit on it right but but whatever she she does well she she added she portrays that like you said disgust and anger and then transitions it into interest more than just kind of like oh i'm charmed kind of thing and then it becomes a little bit more romantic as it goes along yeah and but see and also though it's, it's i never really have taken her interest 
in him as romantic when I watch this film. I take her interest in him as more of a, you see me in this light and I'm intrigued as to why you would see me in this light. You know, because... Yeah, she he acts almost like as a mirror to her throughout the movie. It's like you drove on your moped all this way to hear me sing. You record so that you could hear me sing. And at the very end, well, you well, know, she does not know we'll, that we'll get, she doesn't know any of that until the very final minutes of the movie. The very final that's scene. true. That is true. That is true. Um, but it's almost like an intriguing as to how how he's so like it's almost like a why are you so obsessed with me it's 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 more she's figuring it out i i took it as rather than his whole like like oh this guy's cute it's just more like i just have a fan who's like just really really into what i'm doing well their relationship like a a lot of the relationships uh, this movie is kind of like sexy Yet none of the characters seem to consummate their relationships. Although there is nudity, like Alba gets like naked at one point. It there there doesn't appear to be any sex on uh, like maybe off screen. Yeah, and her shoplifting well, pictures as well too. Although don't forget other the shoplifting than the prost- pictures. Yeah, other than the prostitute, I don't think there's and you never see a sex scene. I don't think there's anybody explicitly having sex. Which I only say that because the relationship between Cynthia and Jules becomes very deep and personal. Um, but it's also shown that he is, because he stays in her hotel room for a while, it, it's shown that he's sleeping on the couch in her suite and she's in the bedroom. Yeah. Um, but they they do get lightly physical with each other. There is uh, there is some, you know, caressing or, or holding, but yeah. it, it, it doesn't ever feel like completely sexual. Um, which is kind of an odd dynamic, but uh, I want to say like it, it, their relationship does get complicated. And then at the end, he does uh, admit that he made the recording, but he admits it by playing it for her. And she admits that she's never heard herself sing. She's never had her voice recorded. And they are like, you know, she listens for to, uh, to it for a while. There's a complicated mix of emotions at play. And the movie kind of freezes on this. The credits roll over like a freeze frame, a long shot of them on the stage in this opera house. And they are like close. It looks like they may kiss. <laughs> uh, or if they continue well, to true. towards each other. What's that? Well, in, in, no, no, I said that's absolutely true. You know, it's, um, you know, there's a... Um, Ah, oh, shit, I forgot what I was going to say. Never mind. Okay. Well, um, that's kind of, that is the end of the movie. There's a lot of, like, twists and turns. Th- this movie did get blasted a bit by French critics for being so style over the substance. This movie is just so, like, flashy, but also in a way that, like, it it, it looks so different than the style over substance that we see today. Like, the flashiness of, now, of current Hollywood or... or thrillers or action movies it there's so much craft in this one <laughs> like like that scene that chase scene through the metro um it's beautiful i mean there's shots in this which are very visually stunning but there, you know, there's it's, also it's, oh sorry go ahead oh no 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 go on go on, go on. 
It's also funny that, that to call it style over substance in a movie so densely plotted as this, like everything in this movie pays off by the end of it. And uh, it, so it is it is just kind of funny now to look back and see, you know, what 40 years ago trash commercial filmmaking looked like it that now it looks so grand. And I, I don't think this was ever trash. I just think that, that it's what the critics kind of trashed in, in France. Yeah. Um, it, it kind of in opposite, in opposition to how it normally works, this was trashed in France, but re, like embraced by American critics. And then, then it gained a reappraisal in France because of it. And usually it's like American like american genre it's opposite americans yeah they they get trashed and you know it's lauded over in france yeah oh as much as just just with the style you know it's there was one movie which i kept uh kept thinking about the entire time i was watching this film and it's very strange because i didn't realize how much connection it had to the other film that we are going to discuss here, but that film is uh, Three Colors Blue. Oh, okay. With, uh, yeah, and I was just, you know, I was watching like, man, this reminds me so much of Three Colors Blue. You know, it's, it's beautiful. There's the lighting and the themes and it's, you know, revolving around music, specifically classical. And, you know, just, you know, I didn't really realize what I was going to get into with the next film as well, <laughs> which has yeah. a lot of ties to that. Yeah. Well, uh, I think unless you have more to say, I think now is a good enough time. We'll we'll take a break. You can listen to the um, the trailer for Mauvais Song. I hope I am pronouncing that as, uh, correctly as well. Jean était le seul type avec des mains assez rapides pour réussir. Son fils, Alex, le fils de Jean. Jean disait qu'il était devenu presque aussi rapide que lui, avec ses mains. As a deadly virus, which infects people who have loveless sex, sweeps Paris, a lonely pariah attempts to steal a potent antidote, only to fall for the mistress of his partner in crime. Is the infectious young love the cure to the bad blood? Uh, that's another IMDb description for Mauvais Song. 
the second feature film from Leo Strauss, uh, the um, kind of absurdist French director with the unfortunately limited filmography, although he's he's had more films since this. Uh, it's just that you have to wait years and it's always kind of a, a bit of a um, a bit of an event. Uh, I saw this movie a few years ago. Uh, the first time I saw it, I was just kind of scrolling through. I don't know if anybody knows Hoopla. It's, I, I don't think it's just the LA Public Library. I think it's a library system, but through the LA Public Library is how I got it. Um, with a library card, there's just like a bunch of videos to stream, um, eBooks to, or comics and uh, audiobooks that you can download as well. Um, with a library card, you get like, like 15 to 20 downloads a month or is it a month or a week? I can't remember. I think it's a month. Um, really great service, interesting stuff. And I was just searching through and I saw like, I was looking at the leaving soon and I saw this and I was like, oh, interesting. Let me look that up. And this movie, I, I, I mean, in several moments really blew me away. I, I think there are so many scenes in this movie that I find just absolutely thrilling. I mean, I, I got chills watching this again just the other day. And, um, you know, your heart starts racing like this is I mean, we'll get into specifics on this, but I I think if I am if I'm going to be honest, I think this movie <laughs> moseys a little bit too much. <laughs> it is almost two hours long and I don't know if anything needs to be cut, but it, it does kind of in the middle start to feel a little bit lifeless. And then suddenly something will happen where it's just like the most energetic thing you've ever seen. But um, yeah, it, 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 so if I'm being honest, this movie is a little bit uneven, but I just love it. So I, it, well, I find it in the parts very where it goes, The parts where it goes like 60 miles an hour, it is such a thrilling ride, you know, just, just with the visuals and the, the music and the beauty involved with it. And then it just kind of slows down. And then it picks up again, you know, it's just, you know, there are distinct parts in the, the, the movie that just, just linger with me, even after watching, because this is my first time watching this film. And, you know, I, I still find myself keeping, uh, thinking back on little scenes like the, the magic act. Do you remember the magic act? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That was so, so much fun are, you know, that beautiful use of uh, Modern Love by David Bowie. Holy smokes, that was just... Well, let's hold off. I do want to talk about that yeah. in particular, but I want to get to that moment. I want to build up to yeah, it. Yeah, let's if you get will. to that moment. Yeah, let's build up to it, yeah. Um, because, the, so, in Mauvais Song, or not Mauvais Song, I'm sorry, in um, Diva, we talked a bit about how the movie seems to, like, kind of lose its plot for a little bit or not lose it, but it, it's just like, oh, well, I want to pay attention to how these characters are going to spend their downtime. Um, yeah. This movie does not care one ounce about its plot. <laughs> its plot is just a metaphor. Like what the, the virus that is, it's STBO. I can't remember what it stands for, but it's basically if two people have sex without being in love, they get this fatal, very painful disease. Like your every joint ain't aches and you're just in pain. Um, and 
it, it's explicitly described as even if only one person is not in love, then both people are infected. And that never, like, you you keep expecting it to to come up because he has this girlfriend. Um, oh, he I say Dennis Levant or Denny Levant, um, who is our our lead character. He plays Alex. He has this girlfriend Julie Delpy, uh, who he leaves because he just like he's like he I, I you you get the idea. He just like he can't. <laughs> he doesn't want to be. Yeah, he's just done with her. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, done. he's done and he's leaving. He's like kind of done with his life. Uh, he's been in prison and he he talks a lot about how he just feels at times like he's his belly is full of concrete. It, it hurts so much after being in prison um, that he needs to escape some way. And he's trying specifically to get away from her. <laughs> and yeah, then he falls in love with uh, Anna, Juliette Binoche, who is the much younger girlfriend of the older uh, criminal who he gets involved with and so there are like sex scenes he does go back and he sleeps with uh lise julie delpy at one point and he does say at one uh, like he loves her but also like you get the idea that he doesn't really he doesn't maybe he doesn't really love anybody um so i kept expecting this disease to you know be a, an actual plot point with the characters and the disease never affects anything. the The plot is yeah. they're trying to they're trying to steal the cure for it, which is being held in some lab, um, and sell it to uh, some other uh, other buyers. But like, aside from explaining that this disease exists and they're after the cure, the disease is not mentioned ever again. So the, I'm so glad that you're mentioning that because I I. One of the things I wanted to talk about was was to ask you, since this, you know, I have only seen it once. You've seen it multiple times. Uh, did I? I was thinking that I had missed something in the film because there is one part I was kind of always expecting the disease to pop up, like oh, somebody's going to get the disease. Oh, this person will get the disease. And there's one scene where his friend shows up with an eye patch, and I was thinking that maybe oh, he got the disease. Oh yeah, now it's finally kicking in and it never really comes to fruition. No. And he shows up to say that like, basically he slept with uh, Lise and he's like, he's yeah. They're, they're admitting that they slept together. And Lise is like, I cheated on you with, um, oh, what's his name? Charlie, I think. Yeah. Uh, but like, we're, it, yeah, nobody is sick. <laughs> it never, it never. Yeah. Happened. Yeah. It's, so, it's it, it's such a weird choice. Like it's obviously a metaphorical, like it, you could say that it, it's a metaphor for AIDS. That's what you would expect from a mid eighties movie with a, a sexually transmitted, transmitted disease that centers around sex without love yet. It's not, they're not making any parallel to AIDS. It is just a Leo's Carax metaphor, right? Like it, it, it is the jumping off point maybe for some, you know, uh, ennui-filled late-night conversations uh, around, you know, with a bunch of shirtless men smoking, chain-smoking. Oh, God. yeah, well, going on a car ride. <laughs> well, I yeah, and that's that's what I think it really is. I mean, like it's you know, in each one of these relationships, there's always one person that loves, and there's one person that doesn't. You know, Lise loves Alex. Alex 
doesn't necessarily love Lise. Alex loves Anna. Anna doesn't love Alex, you know, and then it's, it's a, it's a, that, you know, unrequited love is just permeates every single one of these relationships. You're almost waiting for this disease, this something, this dire to just, you know, you're waiting for that shoe to drop. Yeah, it, it is, it is Chekhov's gun, but it never goes off. And yeah, it, it, but it is such a, like a, a sword hanging over everything in this movie. Like you expect it to happen and it just never does. It, it could be kind of anticlimactic in that way, but it, clearly um, Leo's cracks, it's not what he's interested in, right? He, he's barely interested in this plot. He's interested in staging. He's interested in these philosophical conversations and he's interested in shirtless men chain smoking. And I say that there's a that, lot of shirtless men in this film chain smoking. I brought it up twice. I now. liked it. I, I brought it yeah. up twice now because every time it cuts to them and they're just pacing and they're shirtless and they're all smoking. I'm like, uh, I, I laugh. It's so funny. And yet you also think like, God damn, those rooms must smell terrible. And it's just like all that smoke, like it just gave me this awful sense memory because everybody in my family when I was growing up smoked of being in these just like smoke filled rooms and your the back of your throat is burning. Oh, God, it, it just like. It, it's funny, but it man, it's it's like it gives me a little bit of anxiety. Well, you know, it's it's. You know, it's one of the things which I always bring up to this movie is Haley's Common and how Haley's Common is making it really, really hot. And there's all these illusions for it to being really hot. But, you know, at one point, you just have to understand, is, just, is this just an excuse and a reason to have these guys take off their tops and smoke? And you know what? They're not necessarily the most attractive men out there, you know, so it's just you know, it's like, hey guys, let's take off our shirt and you know, chain smoke while we're driving around Paris. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think he was trying to like get some more skin in this movie. I just I think it is kind of a kind of a funny visual. And I'm not saying funny in a body shaming way. It's just the way that it keeps cutting to it. Like it's a it's a harsh cut to them like pacing back and forth and they're you know stripped down yeah, to chain their, smoking their trousers. And, yeah. Well, you know, it's, you know, was this, was, was this Denis Laurent's first film? Mm, I'm going to check. But let's see. No, I don't think it was. Was Beau Travail before this? I'm trying to remember. Oh my gosh. No, Beau Travail came out in 99, I want to say. Oh. I love Beau Travail. That's, I think, one of my favorite films, but it came out like a good, you know, it came out pretty recently with all things considered, oh. like 1999, 2000. Yeah, you're right. You're right. No, what I was, he was in Boy Meets Girl, which is Leo's Crocs' first feature film. Um, it, that was a couple mm-hmm. years earlier. But he, he'd he been in a few things. He'd been in a, a couple of TV shows, a um, um, couple of shorts. He, he'd been in a few um, feature films. Oh, he was in the 82 Les Miserables. Ooh. This is like his uh, seventh or eighth feature film. So he'd been around for a while. But he is Leo's Crocs' favorite actor. I think he's been in everything that he's made. 
Um, oh, wait, is he in Annette? I haven't seen Annette yet. I know we discussed I almost, either. We almost did that one. And then I see what happens sometimes is I, a guest, a guest picks a movie that I haven't seen and I don't want to do too much research before I actually watch the movie. And so I will pick a movie that I think goes well with it. And this time I was like, oh, let's do Annette. I was just thinking of like, oh, kind of like a music based French movie. And I was like, oh, no, no, let's do the let's do Mobile Song because I that that's like an 80s French movie. And it's still Leo's Crocs. So and I really wanted to discuss it with somebody. And it turned out that this movie fits very well uh, in that both of them are early very examples well. of the cinema du look, you know, the, the style over substance. I think this one calling this one style over substance is much more accurate. It's much more accurate to say it about this movie than it is about Diva if you ask me, because this movie is a lot of conversations, which to be honest, you can kind of zone out to because there's no plot. Like uh, they're just talking about love, about their history and about, you know, Alex talks a little bit about being in jail. Um, But he like, like everything is Diva. You have all these moving plots. You have all these moving pieces. You have these two tapes in the MacGuffin. And in the end, everything kind of gets tied together. With Mauvais Song, you have all those same things, but it never really pays off. It's, you know, you know that there is a virus. You know that he has to steal the vaccine for it. But the rest of the film has nothing to do with it. You know, it has more to do with, you know, like conversations and while it does show the heist scene, the heist scene is a good maybe 20 seconds, correct? Yeah, well, the heist scene, you see the end of it. You don't see the yes. setup. The entire movie, the reason that they are all together is because this this crew, uh, Alex's dad used to be part of this crew. And they've got this big score that they want, but Alex's dad has died. And so they recruit him because he's got, you know, fast hands. Um, And so they go and they sequester themselves in this like kind of nondescript little shop house. It's a house in the the middle of this very packed street or tight street. Yeah. It's it's Um, like a house right across the street from a hotel. Yeah. And they go and they sequester themselves there to plan and practice the heist for two weeks. They have to get everything like set. We never see any of that planning. They talk about like, oh, he's a good planner. It'll go well. We don't see them. We don't, we don't see what their plan is. There's a scene where they go skydiving. And are they doing that because they're going to skydive onto the top of the building? I don't know. Well, it for, never shows it. <laughs> well, from my understanding, the skydiving scene was because that's how Alex is going to get his goal is to get into uh Sweden, right? Is it Sweden or Switzerland? Oh, I don't know. I, like, I, I, I don't. I couldn't remember if they actually said where. It's just that they were going to get him. He was going to get out of the country, and they were going to get the money. Yeah. And so, how he was going to get out of the country was they were going to hop in a plane, and he was going to jump out of the plane into the country. That's why they wanted to uh, do the skydive. Huh. But then, why? Just to make sure that once they fly over the country. He's able to jump up, but then but why, why make, bring? But why? Anna yeah, why make it? Anna do it? <laughs> why make Anna do it? Why does he? Why does uh, um, 
Uh, so what's the guy's the um, Mark? Was it Hans? It? No, no Mark, Hans Mark, is yes. the Hans is the uh, the guy with the full head of hair and um, uh, wears the suit. He's like, get yourself in a nice suit, get yourself made up, get a nice haircut. That way, if you're caught and your picture is in the paper, you look your best. <laughs> um, yeah. Mark is the uh, love interest of Anna. But why do they go on this? I like the like I'm saying the movie doesn't care because you don't see any of the build up to the heist. It's all these conversations about love, and then when the heist happens, it's the the scene starts with the cops showing up as Alex is getting the like it cuts to and Alex as- is getting the the serum and the cops have arrived. Like we don't see them break in. We don't see any of that. It's um, it, it is like I said, very well, uninterested in what, what the actual plot of this movie is. Well, and that's the thing, too. You see Hans getting into a suit before this, and part of me thought Hans is dressing as a suit because he's going to go undercover or he's going to pretend to be somebody else. But no, he just he, he just puts on a suit. Yeah, he puts right? on a suit, and he's the lookout. He's just sitting in the car. Like, he doesn't, yeah. he, he doesn't apparently, I mean, we don't know. I don't, I don't know what Mark did. Like, what was Mark's part in all of this? Because all we see is, go ahead. No, no, no. I I said, I don't know what Mark is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, So before we get to the end of the movie, I should just say like the movie, like this movie is very watchable because like, because it's just all these conversations. It's so well art directed. Everything in the movie is like black and white and gray. And then there's flashes of reds and blues. Like you look at the street and it looks like they painted the entire street gray. 90% of this movie takes place at night. So it's like, it's nighttime, the street's empty. It's a very narrow street. The buildings are very tall. Everything is gray. There's like one car in the street. It's a, a Volkswagen. And yet, and then the sign for the hotel is red. And there's like, I think there's a red awning maybe or something red over the building where they say. And the, so they're staying so those two stand out and then they're wearing pretty like drab colors too like blues and browns and grays the men and then julia binoche will wear a bright blue striking red dress yeah. or like a striking blue dress yeah so it's um but also like the way that the the the, the walls look kind of like this splashes of whites and against blacks that it's really kind of like very cool looking. I mean, it does look like style over substance. It's very, um, very beautiful. You know what this, something that this film reminded me of, it reminded me very consistently of Alphaville by Godard. Ah, okay. Where it's good, you know, Alphaville is set in this kind of futuristic city, but, you know, you could tell it's just, different shots in different areas of you know 60s paris it's just done in different ways to kind of give it like a futuristic look you know it, it makes it seem like it's from a different time and that's kind of how I, I i took this to be as well too you know that art direction of those splashes of that style you know it made it seem almost uh, i couldn't really place the time that it was in it's apparently supposed to be the near future, but there's n- absolutely nothing to signify that. 
other than yeah. you know this this virus that is sweeping the nation and kills 50 percent of the people that get it um so uh, a bit of that style well, that's almost similar to alphaville as well too or yes uh, alphaville does not use anything really it, i mean it uses very like very kind of like of the time technology which is like they don't make they don't make any attempt to make it look futuristic they're just like it's a phone it's a readout like um yeah so yes it, it is like that uh, very much um i want to talk a little bit about juliet binoche who gets one of the all-time great introductions in this movie and we don't see her in her introduction <laughs> but it is like so fucking good how like Alex is on a bus and Juliet Binoche, um, Anna, gets on the bus and he sees him and we see him see her or he sees her. We see him see her before we kind of see her and the music swells like right before and the lights dim in a very like or they don't even dim. They just kind of go out and there's these spotlights. Um, it, it's so striking. And it's like there's all these like edits and she is constantly obscured. Even when the camera is looking right at her, there's like glass that has a reflection on it. So you don't see her face. We just get little images of her, like just little glimpses of her. And like, it, it's completely expressing Alex's emotional state, <laughs> like how he just is immediately like drawn to her. And it, it is like, you know, like a new so center of gravity a, in, in his universe. So I have a question about this. So during these the, this introduction scene with her, you never see her face. It's always blurred. The one thing that you can tell, though, is that she's wearing a white dress, correct? Is, wait, is, is it white? I thought it was... I yeah. thought it was I'm seeing if I can find any, any images of it. Yeah. Yeah, I can't find any images of her on the bus. It's such a an important. Well, when he scene. gets off the bus and follows her, you could just you never really see her face until there. She follows her to be to to the to the the house. Or you think he follows her to the house because later on in the film, when after he's been shot and they're driving away, he sees someone on the side of the road wearing her white dress and i'm wondering because he you could obviously tell he's fallen for this person this white dress on the bus was it anna yeah you're right because now i'm looking at it and it, it is white and honestly huh I was going to say, because I'm looking at a screenshot of it now, it honestly kind of looks like it's not Juliet Binoche. Like, it's weird because there's her sitting here and then you see her reflection. So you see a side profile and you see a little bit of her face in reflection. In reflection, it doesn't look like her. The side profile, I'm looking at it like, oh, that's Juliet Binoche. Yeah, so, the side profile definitely does, but you can't tell clearly who it is. Yeah. But I think I think he sees more than what we're seeing. Uh, maybe i mean you know you always get those where you, you, you're trying to spot somebody through a crowd um yeah that is that is one of my favorite scenes in the movie is just her introduction it's such a like cinematic moment it like it kind of reminds me of um 
uh, Kim Novak's second introduction in Vertigo, <laughs> where oh, yeah. the lights go out kind of like behind her and it's clear like it's just cinematic. It doesn't, it's not actually happening in the world. It's just how Jimmy Stewart is seeing her. But it it does, like yeah. I said, um, it does feel like like the effect it has on Alex is as if there's a new like well i said it earlier maybe I'll, but there is like a new center of gravity there is a new star at the center of his solar system that he is now gravitating around it is so like there is no getting to know you period it is just like he has like found her and that's all he needs right now yeah you know it, it, in a movie so much about not just not being in love but also being in love you can feel him falling in love like the world stops everything pulls in to that center of gravity like you said and it's just it just becomes her and you know that's how love has always been portrayed in movies and books and songs that it becomes that one singular instance that you know quote unquote love at first sight yeah i and oh man so denny levant who plays Alex, this is the first thing I ever saw him in. He's in almost everything else that Leo Scarrox has done. Um, he is an odd, odd looking dude, right? Like, yeah, I, I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not going to be mean. I'm not, because I, I think he's, he's striking. I think he's, he's got a handsomeness, but he is a strange looking man, but his physicality, I, I mean, is he, I mean, he must be, uh, like, he must have some history in gymnastics or something. Um, well, he... the first film that I saw him in was Butcher And, you know, the ending scene of that the, the is, hands down, first off, my favorite ending to a movie of all time is Butcher But, you know, I always took him, because of that, as, like, either, like, a... Uh, like in a dancer at some point, a dancer or a gymnast, because he always transforms and performs uh, very physically with any role that he has. Well, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, I want to interject, we'll continue on that about him, that I'm just looking at his Wikipedia. Uh, at 13, uh, he was fascinated by, Mar by Marcel Marceau, and he took courses in pantomime and the circus. He trained at the Paris Conservatory um, and uh, then began acting in, in 1982. So he did have a background of, you know, some, some sort of acrobatics. And it's so obvious. There's one scene in particular in this movie, but also like uh, speaking of Karak's uh, Holy Motors from 2012, where he's playing so many different characters. He's playing one character, but he's all, he's got, to play multiple characters and there's a different physicality to all of them in it, it he's he moves in such an in, uh, like an interesting dynamic way and so we're going to talk now about my favorite scene in the movie and i think maybe everybody's favorite scene in the movie where he's talking with anna and he and anna are up late at night and he's kind of like trying to get Anna to love him and Anna is like I seriously love Mark like that that relationship isn't just a like oh I'm a gangster's mall there she really loves him like right 
and he denny levant turns on the radio and he's like there's this really cool thing where he they're, they're talking about I can't remember the words, but it's basically like the Oracle of radio where it's like, you just turn on the radio and it'll immediately play what you need to hear. And it's playing like talk radio or something. So he just like flips the dial. Yeah, he's he like flips one, it three times, three times. Yeah. He's like one, two, three. And it comes up with music and he's like, see, and then the music ends and it starts. And the next song comes up and it's David Bowie's modern love. And uh, Alex has been walking out onto the street and as modern love, and he's kind of like getting a, like, you can see he's like tortured. He's kind of like moving in a weird way. And then modern love kicks off and he starts running. And it is the most thrilling thing I've ever seen in a movie. This shot where they're just tracking along with him down this city street and it goes on forever and he's running and the run just keeps threatening to turn into a dance and he well he doesn't start running he first he's like walking and stumbling because he's like his stomach is killing him he has that thing where he talks about feeling at times like yeah. his stomach goes full of cement hey, go ahead he i'm sorry his stomach a couple oh no 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 he, he's walking along if you tell it his stomach hurts like that the concrete in it, and he starts punching his stomach and then the, it, the the walk becomes kind of like a trot and then the trot becomes a run and then the run he just it explodes with this energy and just it's it's amazing you know there's a, he does a cartwheel halfway through it he does kind of like a skip and a dance halfway through it you know it's just all this emotion and physicality is is brought about just by this one scene just to see what is going on in, inside it and yeah it, it it is it is all of the things that are spoken and unspoken and everything that he's holding inside kind of bursting out for this one moment. And what's so thrilling about it is it's one take and you can kind of like the camera, the camera is obviously on a car keeping pace with him and he is racing down the street at the end of it. And then suddenly there, you know, there's a couple of edits to like kind of close up on him as he's running like his legs and stuff. And then there's one quick edit at the end where the music cuts out and he skids to a stop and there's a weird kind of like sound and silence and he just turns and runs off camera the other way, like going back where he came from. Um, the scene lasts just like a minute or something like that, maybe less. It, it, that It is my favorite use of Modern Love, which is a song that is used to great effect in plenty of movies, but it's just like, it really gives me chills. I, I my heart is racing during the scene. I love it. Yeah, I gotta say it's probably my favorite use of a David Bowie song in a movie. Oh yeah, and really? that's yeah. I mean, it's 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 a it's incredible. Um, like I'm, you know, I'm just off the top. I mean, yeah, of course you have Labyrinth and David Bowie and all the music and for that, and you know, it's you know, it's just it's but it just there's something about it which you see that the vision that Crocs had with Alex running down the street and also the turmoil which Bowie even had with the song Modern Love and it just works so well together so well and so this is like this you can see in this the reason Leo's Crocs is kind of like making this movie or telling this story 
is he just has these moments like this where he he kind of like everything that like i said this movie can feel a little lumpy at times or a little bit misshapen in the way that like it it doesn't seem very focused for much of it um everything crystallizes in these moments um and you, you see it again later in like even like holy motors which is the last movie as i've seen where i think that movie is actually more sustained enjoyment than Mulve song sometimes but it it um it has the same thing where just like the idea of the movie crystallizes in like a few perfect minutes and then kind of like gets back to what it's doing <laughs> yeah yeah there's and you know holy motors it, it's it's really is just compromise of of a whole bunch of different moments and different scenes you know i mean it it really does play off of that you know it plays off of the strengths which is why i think holy motors uh lingers and is so renowned for what it is because it's it's basically just a series of those vignettes yeah um okay so to get to get back into the quote-unquote plot for a little bit yeah. um so at the end of the movie the heist kind of goes wrong because we find out that uh charlie Alex's old friend who slept with Lise has called the police and because he's, he's jealous that Lise still loves Alex. Uh, Alex gets out by holding himself hostage and he, he, yeah. he shoots a cop in the getaway but is also shot himself and so they're, they're racing to the airport to get him out of the country but they're also like there's a first aid station maybe they can help him but it's clear he's, he's dying. Um, we haven't even mentioned the American woman who is apparently she has dealings with like, like Mark seems to think the American woman has killed Alex's dad, even though everybody else is saying, no, it was a suicide. Um, yeah. And we see that in the beginning, in the beginning of the movie, we see Alex's dad. And it does not look like a suicide. It looks like he stumbled or was pushed into an oncoming train because he has a moment of like, ah, as he falls off the platform. But we only see it from the back. We don't see anybody else around him. Um, so it it's never clear. But she says she didn't that, you know, he owed her money, but she like killing him isn't going to get her money back. So he, she wouldn't have done it. Um, yeah. She's trying to get Alex to give her the antidotes and she'll pay him more. But he kind of refuses, and um, he, she, he, Alex is shot. I, I, I screwed it up earlier. Alex is shot by her henchman, basically, and she's very upset by it. She's like pissed off that he got shot. She didn't want him to die, but um, yeah, like there is. <laughs> I'm now that I'm like I'm talking about it. I'm like there is more plot here that we just didn't discuss, but it's kind of like it. It doesn't well really the mean plot gets overshadowed yeah the plot gets overshadowed by these by these scenes and the discussion of love and want and desire and you know there is a, an ongoing plot but it becomes secondary to these emotions that the characters are feeling yeah and so um at the end uh he ends up um he ends up dying from being gut shot uh, Lise shows up for like kind of a minute 
at, at the end, like witnesses. And then she gets back on a motorcycle and drives off. Um, and then Juliet Binoche, who is, uh, you know, falling in love with Alex, even if, if she's like loyal to Mark, uh, like takes off running and it's another running scene where she's like running down the, the runway the, the, at the airfield and like lifting her arms like she's flying and the camera does this weird speed up thing and then that's the end of the movie. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I quite understand what he's trying to say about everything. I just, I kind of like, I, I've talked about this before when I'm discussing Lynch films that I, I don't really approach them intellectually i approach them from an emotional standpoint and kind of like just kind of vibe on on the emotions and what what the movie is is kind of inspiring in me and then like later i'll try and work it out or maybe through repetition or repeated viewings i'll start to figure out what's going on um so yeah. i'm gonna say i don't really understand all of his metaphors here i just know that i i kind of like am enchanted by this movie yeah, you know, and, and that's the thing too. That's that's why when uh, my takeaway from the end of the film, it was less about it was more about the emulations of love and you know unrequited love as well too, and also how that changes over time. You know, it's for a majority of the film, you have Alex, you know, professing his love for Anna and Anna being very standoffish because of her loyalty to Mark. And then in the end, it's a realization for her. And it's almost, you know, instead of her, you know, she, she's the, now the person who's leaving just as much as Alex left Lise. You know, she's in a sense running away from Mark. And it's that, you know, it's that, it's that cycle. You know, it's huh. that cycle of, you know, being in love and somebody not being in love and unrequited love. And it just, it, it passes. It's, it's almost like a disease. Yeah. Okay. It all of a sudden just clicked with me right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll we'll take it. We'll take it. Um, so yeah, Julie I'll, Del I'll take that. Yeah. Julie Delpy in this movie, and Julie Delpy is great. Um, Julie Delpy is amazing in everything she does. I, you know, my two favorite French actresses, which are working, is Julie Delpy as well as Juliette Binoche. So this, this was amazing for me. Well, I I met Julie Delpy once about four years ago, three no. years ago, maybe, um, at Universal when I was working at Universal, and I was I uh, I was working at The Walking Dead, the indoor attraction that that's yeah, closed yeah. now. Um, and she walked out like she was there. I think she was taking like with somebody younger and she didn't want to go through the walking dead. Can you imagine Julie Delpy going through the walking dead's maze? <laughs> but Oh my gosh, I would be in love. She did not want to Sorry, go through that's... with it. So at the, at the entrance, there's an exit. You can go out and go through a, like a, a hallway to get out where you don't have to go through the maze. And so she like just escorted somebody up to the entrance to go through the maze and then she dipped out and went through the and waited outside for the other person and I walked her out and I didn't say anything I I was just like like the person the the woman that I was with uh, the other manager I was with uh saw me walking and she's like I love you I love your work <laughs> I didn't say anything I just like walked her out and was kind of like there you go have a nice day so um I mean we we exchanged like a how are you but I I didn't like going to get into a conversation so i guess met is maybe too strong a word but i did like i walked her out of the maze oh my gosh that is 
I, I, I would live with that moment for the rest of my life, Aaron. <laughs> That's like a dream for me right there. It's just like, I'm like, oh, you know, I've met many, many people in my life, but I haven't met Julie Delphi. And that's just like, okay, heart be still. Yeah. Heart be still. Uh, no, yeah, I was pretty jazzed too. Um, she apparently did not like <laughs> working with the, working on this movie. Uh, oh, I yeah, I've I read something about that. You, yeah, because yeah, so, so bad that she almost, she, she considered quitting acting. It made her like want to go, is this what I want to do? <laughs> because... First off, there was she would there was a motorcycle accident and she like really badly injured her leg, and they held off letting her go to a doctor because of insurance reasons. And it got so bad that they they own like the way she says it, they almost had to amputate because it got gangrenous. And um, and she also said that uh, she she didn't like go into specifics, but it was clear she was like she she called her the other actress, Julia Binoche uh said that she was very difficult and very unpleasant towards her and so uh she left the set just like that was horrible and this is uh is this her first movie no no she was in a godard film earlier uh the godard film it's not uh carmen it's hold on a second here let me look that up she's she's i know that oh go ahead sorry oh no 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 hold on Hold on a second. I'm just finding out which Godard film it was. Give me a second here. Oh, uh, uh, Detective. Yeah, it's Detective. It's Detective. That's it. Okay, yeah, that was the year before. So she actually actually been in a couple of things. Um, yeah, but this is pretty early on in her career. So, uh, <laughs> like, uh, that sucks. But she filmed this, right? She. What's that? She was 15 or 16 when she filmed it, correct? Yeah, I believe she was 16. And she also says Leo's Crocs was kind of difficult as well. Uh, so it just seems like, I mean, which I can understand. I can totally imagine Leo's Crocs being a like idiosyncratic, difficult person. But it is also a bummer if it's like making other people unpleasant on a set. Yeah. Um, so I'm anyway, just glad that she stuck with it. Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I am too. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say before we uh, we close the book on these two movies? Nope, I don't have anything really else to say or add. I feel like, yeah, I feel like we didn't quite um, like we, we didn't quite draw the line under the these. Well, no, I guess we did about the the cinema do look. Um, both both featuring pretty memorable scenes of public transportation. <laughs> Uh, yeah, exactly. Both kind of coming from a, a, a an askew angle at a heist, or like, yeah, I guess you can call. The, the, there's kind of a heist in in uh, Diva. Yeah, there, there's there's a heist as well. I mean, you have the dress that's part of a heist. Yeah, you've got a lot of motorbikes, which you know, I'm sure you got a motorbike in Diva. You got a motorbike in Malval Song. And so, yeah. And um, yeah, like that, that seems to be kind of like a, a, um, a theme or a, a, a thematic symbol in the cinema de look films or the films that are, 
because nobody was making these movies thinking I'm making a cinema to look movie. That's not, nobody thinks about like, I'm making a film noir. It's a, it's a name that gets given to it later by critics. And that, yeah. there is a through line in these movies of the Paris Metro and public transportation of like being symbolic of a, a subterranean nightlife that most people aren't aware of, which is certainly the case in Mauvais Song and kind of like, it's also the case, it is definitely the case in Diva. It's just Diva has more daylight. <laughs> Diva has more. Yeah, yeah. Diva has more real recognizable humans in it. <laughs> uh, Mauvais Song almost seems like this movie, this world is populated just by these, these main characters and a couple of oddballs that they run across. Um, well, it's, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because there are some set pieces with Diva that you could transfer over to Marvel Song, like uh, you know the underground uh, arcade that's in Diva. You know, I could see that showing up in some way, shape, or form in Malve Song, and it's like I could see some of the set pieces in Malve Song showing up in Diva as well too. It's it feels like it, it's almost in the same world in a sense. Well, I will say that I feel like Mauvais Song, Mauvais Song gives the impression of loneliness of an empty world. Uh, yeah. Diva, Diva feels like it's a much more alive world full of human connection. Like it, there are human connections everywhere in Diva and Mauvais Song. They're kind of like they're through circumstance. They're, they're, they're very passionate, but in a passionate in a way but they're also like kind of few and far between like it doesn't seem like it's it although alex seems to just fall in love with every woman he sees um yeah <laughs> so I, I i do think i mean they, they complement each other well i also want to say like you think to talk about like the subterranean nightlife thing you think about like luke Besson's subway which could have gone with diva as well as kind of like this this like subterranean nightlife that uh, the day the day walkers are not aware of. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't you know some of Basson's work is part of uh, part of this movement as well too? Correct. Yeah, actually, he, Leos Carax, and Jean Jacques Benet are like. Well, I mean, I'm I'm no expert. I just did a little bit of reading on it. those. Are the three like <laughs> those? They are the three kind of uh, uh, key directors, basically. And uh, I was reading, like, uh, well, Wikipedia, as much as we can take it, like, basically kind of says that, that a lot of these filmmakers were inspired by the new Hollywood films, like most notably, it's, I'm reading per verbatim here, uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, like One from the Heart and Rumblefish. And you think about that, and like mm -hmm. Rumblefish particularly seems like it's also drawing from the very stylistic French uh like like french dramas french not not expressionism but like french new wave so it's interesting that like cinema du look is kind of considered a reaction a turning away from the french new wave but they're drawing their their source of inspiration or what people like kind of trace it back to is itself inspired by the french new wave in a way um it's just kind of fascinating how like the art of cinema works like it, the way it yeah it, like, it kind of turns itself on its own you know 
now that you mentioned it, something that just reminded me of both films, uh, Michael Mann's Thief, you know, oh, kind of reminded yeah. me a little bit of that as well, too. And Definitely, you know, that yeah. takes, you know, all these, you know, it's, in, it's, you know, it's now inspired by, you know, Thief is inspired by a lot of like, you know, certain types of cinema, which then it comes back around over to this new French style of cinema. Yeah. Um, so I think we're going to we're going to take a little break here uh, and we'll we'll say our goodbyes on the other side of it. I, I do want to say, like, I know we talked a lot about the scene of David Bowie scene that Mauvais song. It, it definitely like people just need to check this out if you haven't seen it. I mean, I actually haven't looked into it. I'm assuming it's it, it got a really good Blu-ray release. People love Leo's Crocs. So I, I think it's a pretty well-known film, but it, it's also still maybe a bit obscure to um, <laughs> maybe to the people who don't listen to this show, I guess people who listen to this, I'm assuming, they, <laughs> I'm assuming the people who listen to this show know more about movies than I do. So I'm, I'm like kind of in a weird position here, but I, that David Bowie, well, if you've scene, already heard about it, it's worth a wee rah, wee rah, yeah. wee rah, rewatch. That David Bowie scene is everything I think film does well like like a, a perfect example of it it is everything working together it is movement on screen it is editing even though like it's only the editing at the end of that scene it is the sound over it it is the spoken and unspoken emotion all coming to like it's just like everything well, and it's also and it's together. also Dennis Laurent's like it's it's the actor it's the actor in his prime doing what he does best which is that physicality of putting uh you know emotion into just his 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 work in front of the camera exactly uh well said okay we're gonna take a break we'll be right back we're gonna say our goodbyes <laughs> Okay, well, that that's actually pretty much it. We're just going to wrap things up here today. Hope you enjoyed our discussion. I think we both highly recommend both of these movies. Um, I'm definitely going to be rewatching Diva. I, I did rent it on Amazon. I think that rental is expired, but and I think maybe I'll just go look. I think there's a Blu-ray. Maybe I'll buy that. Um, yeah, I think the Blu-ray just came out this year. Oh, well, thank you for recommending it. Um, I'm not sure I would have seen it. Maybe I would have. Uh, I should say... This is kind of an accidental tie-in tie with Dial F for Film uh, that Carlos is doing because that's all the 1001 movies you must see before you die. And I noticed that Diva is on that list. So there's a, a chance that I would have had, I would have had to watch it for his show uh, eventually. Um, I'm glad that we knocked that out. So uh, anything going on with you or anything you want to like, what, do you, what have you been up to lately or what's, uh, what's kind of lighting your fire these days? You know, just, you know, right now, the only thing really my passion is, is just been music and records, you know, just uh, a lot of been listening to a lot of music at the end of 2021, just trying to get everything like best of list personal for that. And uh, yeah, just really that I think everything in my social feeds has just been about music lately. Yeah, well, I, we, we might as well go ahead and say, um, probably in a month or so, we're going to be doing a, a, 
an off-brand episode. We're going to be doing a uh, music episode. We're going to talk about our favorite music of 2021. Um, because I've been doing this thing this year where I've been trying to listen to um, an album a day, and but each album has to be from this year. Uh, I think I think I missed because it took me a few days to real to figure I'm like or to decide that I'll just do 2021 releases. So uh, there's a few days in January where I listen to old albums. So I'm gonna make that up so I have a full 365 days of 2021 music, and there's a ton of great stuff out there and a lot of it you already knew uh a lot of it from bands that i'm just discovering that you've you've been on like aware of for years uh but we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about our favorite music from this year uh, and that'll probably come out in january so we'll we'll probably well we'll probably record it in january like, try and get it out kind of quick yeah uh, to be honest let's record it in january because i'm still finding out about new albums on a daily basis right now <laughs> Yeah, yeah, me too. Actually, I, I need to catch up on the last couple of days because I've just been, um, I mean, after the holidays, I, I just, I don't know, I just didn't have the energy to like research. And I, I actually don't do a lot of research. I usually just kind of go on Bandcamp and look at the new stuff or I look at Wikipedia to see what like albums have come out. And I'm like, oh, well, let me try this one. Um, but I, I just, I kind of haven't had the energy for the last couple of days. But uh, after we're done recording, I got to go and I got some housework to do and I'm going to just listen to a few albums tonight and then go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I've been doing every single night. I've just been trying to not only catch up on anything new that's coming out in the last month, but also just really process what's come out this entire year because it's been a lot and it's been incredible music so far. Incredible. Yeah, that I, I already know that I'm going to miss so much stuff. There's going to be so much stuff that I've listened to that I love that I'm just not... I'm not going to be able to put into this episode. So it's going to, it's, I'm finding it really hard to narrow it down. Yeah. This is going to be a month long process just for me to get through what I want to talk about, but you know what, we'll do it and it'll be awesome. All right. Well, everybody look forward to that at the time that you're hearing this, the the episode will probably be out within a couple of weeks or uh, within a month. Um, We're going to try and get it out quick. It may be, uh, it may be a special episode. I may break the bi-weekly format just to get that one out there kind of timely manner. Um, but I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, so um, I think that's going to do it for us. Uh, you can, uh, you don't want to plug anything, right? Uh, do you have anything you want to say? No, I, you know, other than just getting back on Twitter and being on Instagram, my handle is at milk can rocks. That's milk can rocks, you know, feel free to follow me or whatever on there. I, yeah, and as for us, you can find us on both those places, and it's at Two Headed Pod. You can find us there. You can uh, shoot us an email, Two Headed Pod at Gmail, I believe is it is what it is. And um, yeah, if you're enjoying the show, like, rate, review, subscribe, please. Like reviews do help if I want to get the word out, and I kind of do want to get the word out. I, I think. Uh, what the fuck am I saying? Anyway, just rate, review, subscribe, <laughs> and we'll, we'll we will uh, be speaking at you in just a couple of weeks.